We will be reading uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I'm going to start by just reading through this passage. So if you have your Bibles and you'd like to open up there, please do so. It will also be on the screen. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the name as if her head is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought, to, ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, all right. This is the Word of God. In it, we find everything we need as believers to be equipped, to be encouraged to be strengthened by God, to be on this mission of God for the glory of God. Yet sometimes we come across passages that are bizarre, very foreign, difficult to wrap our minds around, to which we would immediately say, there's no way he means this literally. And if you're in a Bible study, you'll just say, we're going to move on to the next passage, the Lord's Supper. Uh, unfortunately, I, I guess fortunately, I say unfortunately because it's going to be difficult. But fortunately, we're not going to do that because there's a wealth of information in this passage, whether it seems like it on the surface or not. And, and part of the reason we preach through books of the Bible ex- expositorily, chapter by chapter, chunk by chunk, is so that we don't skip things that we would normally skip. If we were just doing a topical series, I guarantee you there's no way I would ever say, let's preach on head coverings this week. (laughs) But by the grace of God, we're going to walk through this passage and we're going to trust him to bring to light the things we need to see for this time and space, for, for our culture, for this context as missionaries, as the people of God gathered to worship. What is it that he's communicating to us in this passage? But in order to, to rightly position our hearts and our minds, let's first go to him in prayer. 
Father, I'm so grateful that you have sovereignty, that you have knowledge beyond anything we could even imagine. I'm grateful that you have done a work through Christ to bring to light the things we need to see, uh, both in the early church in the first century, those in Corinth and here in Monroe in 2018. Your word is relevant and it's true and it's meaningful and it gives life and it changes things. So Lord, I ask you to help us this morning as we seek to understand what it is you would communicate through your word to us what we should do with this passage. Help us as you have been faithful this week to help me study this passage. I pray that you would help me communicate it with integrity and with accuracy by the power of your spirit to save the lost, to to unify your body, to encourage and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Let it be that we, we not just pass through this as a weird text in this scripture or dismiss it as an ancient text that doesn't apply to us, but let it be that we would faithfully lean in and see your spirit move and work in ways that we can't even know until your spirit brings understanding. We praise you for all of this even before we dig in, because we know you're faithful. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name. All right, so we have just entered a section of this letter Chapters 11 through 14 are Paul addressing, the whole book is is Paul addressing specific questions being asked of him, and chapters 11 through 14 are specifically, how do the the saints operate when they gather for worship? What is our behavior? So the Corinthians in general, the Christians in Corinth in general, understand doctrine. They get on paper what's right and what's wrong. Better than other letters, we can see Paul harping a lot on here's what's right, here's what's right, understand these things. Well, in this letter, it's more about behavior. It's more about the application of the truth. It's, is your behavior actually pointing to Jesus? Are you making it all about him? Are these things falling in line? And so he's, he's going chunk by chunk and, and addressing specific questions. Uh, and we're going to see in the next three chapters him address specifically what we just read, the actions of men and women within a worship gathering. And, and then chapters, at the end of this chapter, the observance of the Lord's Supper within a worship gathering. And then, and then chapters 12 through 14 can really be grouped together as uh, the operation of spiritual gifts of individuals within a body. Uh, and then namely, all of that operating through love, which many of you know is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And so we're going to look at this morning the biblical concept of gathered worship as men and women as husbands and wives for some, and uniquely gifted, given a role and a position by God, joined together for the body. Now, small groups in the first century church within homes, house church, um, count as a a worship gathering, the fellowship, a meal together, a prayer together. And then every once in a while, periodically, these small churches would have the opportunities to gather for a worship event, much like our Sunday mornings. And, and they would partake in the Eucharist. They'd share the Lord's Supper. And, and they would have, uh, as an example, an agape meal or a love feast, which we will be having next week and I'm pretty excited about. We're going to worship. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper after hearing a sermon specifically on the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to have a potluck afterward and, and celebrate and fellowship and eat good food and enjoy one another. And this has been happening since the beginning of the church the saints gathering in this way. So the question is, 
How is our new understanding of who Christ is and our new freedoms in the gospel and what the gospel means for us as individuals and as a corporate body? The question is, how are we to behave when we gather together in this way? We don't know the specific questions because we don't have the letter they wrote to him, but we have his answers. And so we have what we should be doing. And there it is. Cover your head, women, men, uncover your head. That's all there is to it, right? Thankfully, that's not all there is to it because I see a hat over here. I'm just kidding. Everyone's looking. He's taking it off. Okay. Side note, I didn't grow up in like typical evangelicalism. Um, I wasn't Southern Baptist. When I got to college, we got together for, to pray at the BCM. And someone said, all right, fellas, pop your tops. We're about to pray. And I was like, what in the world? <laughs> I am not. I don't know what that means, but I'm not doing it. And now I've learned there's customs in Southern Baptist Church. Guys take off their hats and they pray. And it might be because of this verse. might be for other reasons. I'll just tell you, I've searched for it. I don't understand it. And often I leave my hat on when I pray. Judge me if you want. But when we get into this, hopefully you'll see some freedoms. Some of it's silly and we can laugh about it. Some of it's respectful and you should honor certain people in certain ways and certain situations. But as the people of God gathered, as we work through this book of the Bible, as people once unable to understand the word of God, but filled with the Holy Spirit who brings understanding according to chapter 2 of this letter, What does our behavior look like when we gather? As a body of regenerate believers who walk in step with the gospel in all of life, as chapter 5 has told us, what is our behavior to look like? As those who were once immoral pagans, now washed and justified and sanctified in the name of Jesus and by his spirit, as a temple of the Holy Spirit, bought with the price, as chapter 6 tells us, what does our behavior look like? As people who believe success and status and position in the world's definition of those things does not matter if it means we're not sharing Christ, as chapter 9 showed us, what does our behavior need to look like? And as a people set on destroying our idols before they destroy us, seeking to glorify God in all of life and everything that we're doing, no longer bound to the obligation of the law, but set free in obedience because of Christ. As chapter 10 showed us, what should our behavior look like? And as we gather to worship, what does it mean to be unified in a public worship gathering of our King? In this nation, in this city, in a society that has so many expectations and and cultural rules and norms and breaking some of the cultural norms has become a popular thing among hipsters and others. What does it mean when we say we're believers and our behavior flows out of that? In particular this week, what does it look like as a man and as a woman gathered to worship our King? Seeing in Scripture there are distinct roles for man and woman and a culture that would try and do away with those roles. Here's what I hope we find in this passage. And so let's walk through it somewhat verse by verse. I want to I lay a foundation and, and build a framework and then try to have some application for us. I think there's personal application in here and then there's certainly corporate application because that's the purpose of the passage. So, verse 2. I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited about it. 
Hopefully I've piqued your curiosity at least. Verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I deliver them to you. So if we take in consideration the rest of this letter that we've read so far, it seems a little bit sarcastic that he would be praising them for something because they've not done well in any way. But all of a sudden he's saying, I commend you for apparently being faithful to these things I've delivered you. And we're about to see specifically to the understanding of the role of a man and a woman. So this question, at least that they ask, it at least demonstrates that they remember the traditions he's taught them. They remember the rules, the the regulations that he's taught them concerning the role of a man and a woman. But then he offers some correction. And verse three is key to the entire passage. So let's hear it clearly and we'll come back to it a few times. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Notice, right from the start, he's telling us what he wants us to know. He's telling us what he wants us to understand. And it has nothing to do with what you wear on your head. It's about the nature of authority and submission. So hold in your minds the nature of authority and submission as we work through all of this. What is the nature given by God, the design of God for authority and submission? Culture will tell us it's one thing. We're going to have to work to understand what the Word of God tells us, and we'll dissect that in just a little bit. It's also worth noting that it's it's the interpreter's prerogative whether or not to translate these words husband and wife or man or woman. It's the same Greek word. It depends on context. So if you read different translations, whatever you're reading this morning, um, I specifically chose to use the ESV. I almost used the Christian Standard Bible, as we've talked about doing. Um, but it, it, it's very man-woman the whole time. And I think there's some, some need for nuance here. Because in general, not every woman submits to every man. But certainly there is submission authority in a husband-wife relationship. But when we talk about a corporate gathering, there is a type of submission that needs to be happening among the members, the general members of the church and the elders of the church, which biblically are men. So there are ways in which it both applies. So hang in there with me as we try to try to weed this out a little bit. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So a play on words here refers to Christ, the head. The first word of head is literally the man's head. But the second word head is Christ, his head, which we know from verse 3. And it it also talks talks about dishonoring himself. So it's, it's a dishonor to him and to God. It doesn't tell us why it's a dishonor. But if he covers his head, it's a dishonor. We'll get to that in a minute. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So referring to man, verse three, referring to man as her head, all right, literally covering her head. Culturally, this would be a veil. Some would say it's just long hair, but but culturally it's a veil that married women wore and it dishonors the husband if she is to prophesy or pray with her head uncovered ultimately points to Christ, the head of the church. And then also, side note, don't miss clear implication here that in the public gathering, women are praying and prophesying. We'll talk about that in October, cliffhanger, when we get to chapter 14, because there's a verse that says women are to be silent 
in the public gathering. We know Paul's not contradicting himself. We know scripture doesn't contradict itself. So we'll do some work in harmonizing that when we get there. I'm excited about that too, but we're going to stay here right now. Verse six, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut off her hair for the shape or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, finally, cultural relevance here. So in, in, Corinth, in Corinth, Roman Corinthian married people symbolize their marriage. The women would wear a veil to say, I'm taken. Don't bother checking me out. I'm with him. I, be, I belong to him in this culture. Now, we do something very similar with wedding rings, but it's not exactly the same thing because there's also these, these cultural norms that would put women in certain positions. And women didn't have a lot of voice in a lot of ways. And because of the cultural norms, they were, they were either oppressed or they were taken advantage of. And if not for the veil symbolizing man as their head, as a, having a husband, then they were seen as, as prostitutes or, or there was this type of social rebel that would go uncovered. And so it's as if to say, I'm not a prostitute. I'm not a widow. I'm not a social rebel. I belong to my head. I belong to my husband. This is even more meaningful within the church, though they have liberty in Christ to do whatever they want. So Paul's drawing out some cultural things here to make some specific points. Also, a shaved head is a public sign of shame because an adulterous woman would have her head shaved. Also, it was the haircut of choice for slave class women. It wasn't really their choice, but you get what I'm saying. So there was shame attached to a shaved head. There's shame attached to unveiled heads because they were, they were prostitutes. But also, many commentaries spoke of a type of woman, an elite class woman, who had more of a voice in the culture, who would go unveiled in a rebellious way to tear down some of the social constructs. These were feminists. They were challenging the gender roles. They were challenging what what the, the Roman culture would say about women by simply unveiling their head. And then they would also have opportunities to share their philosophies of feminism. And I believe that fits this context a little more specifically than than prostitute or slave or widow. And we'll get there in just a minute. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, if you understand the reproductive system, you know that verse 8 isn't really how it works. Man doesn't, I mean, woman doesn't come out of man. Man comes out of woman. We all know how that works, right? Do I need to explain anyone? Okay. And I'm sure that Paul knows this as well. However, this 8 and 9 are referencing something. It's drawing us back to something very crucial to all of this. It's pointing us to the creative order. Remember, Eve was created from Adam right? God took a rib and made Eve. When I do, when I officiate weddings, I often quote Matthew Henry. I didn't write that quote down, so to paraphrase it, he says, when God made woman, he didn't take him from man's head to top him or from his feet to be trampled upon by him, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from near his heart to be loved by him. This is the concept of Paul's trying to draw out woman from 
man. Woman was created from man and for man, not the other way around. But ultimately, it's for God, because certainly, though from man, woman is still in the image of God. As a rule of interpretation, because we have a reference here to the creative order, we can't just dismiss this passage. Because it cannot just apply and hold to that one culture if it goes all the way back to, out, coming out of that culture, going all the way back to the creative order. And Paul, I think, is indirectly using creative order here as an illustration and not, not giving us a foundation to say with, with any sort of dogmatism, you must obey all of this. But certainly there's an underlying meaning that's universally applied here. So we have an obligation to dig deep and to try and understand what exactly is being applied. So we're going to look at Adam and Eve. Let's get through a few more verses first. Because verse 10 is just like, what are you talking about? That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. You know, because of the angels. This verse... Caused me the most frustration as I tried to work. What in the world? Where did this come from? I was with you. I was like, okay, this makes sense. This is good. So now that you understand that, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So, first of all, angels, the word angels can easily be translated messenger. Every time you see it in the New Testament, messengers. So some believe that it's speaking of those who would visit these worship gatherings as messengers from the culture so that they are not distracted by the breaking of social norms. Women ought to maintain this symbol of authority on their heads. I I can kind of see that, and I think there's certainly application there. If we want to be missionaries, we need to understand our cultural context. Uh, But I think most translations translated angels because that's what they mean. That's what he means. He means angels. And the first church um, or the first century church, uh, they would often speak of these angels being with them in their worship gatherings. They would, they would join to participate and to watch over as witnesses of the church gathering. Angels, if anyone in creation understands the, the authority submission dynamic, angels do. They were created for only one purpose, to serve and to make much of God and to boast of his holiness and to protect his glory. In fact, in the book of Acts, we see an angel of the Lord killed Herod Agrippa and worms ate him. Like, you remember that? Why did the angel kill him? Because he tried to to steal glory from God and an angel killed him and worms ate him. That's awesome. So, For Paul to write, you should keep the symbol of authority on your head because of the angels. It's bringing to mind for this first century church, the angels that are gathered with us as we gather to protect our opportunity, our freedom to worship God and to, to guard us from stealing any glory from God, to do anything that would distract, to do anything that would detract, to do anything that would bring others to look at us and worship us and bring glory to us. So just follow these simple rules is what he's saying. And then, so that's angels. And then symbol of authority also, there's some some difficulty there. There's, There's no word in this passage in Greek. There's no word that's translated symbol. It's just a modification that some translators have added, a symbol of authority rather than just authority on her head. Uh, The veil itself carries no authority. So what is it talking about? Now, 
as we, as we seek to understand submission authority, it's important that we see authority is not this, uh, this enforced oppression. It's not this, you must submit to me. There's no intimidation into submission biblically. Rather, it refers to the power of Christ to give freedom. And when Paul uses, there's two words in Greek that he uses for authority uh, in this sense, exousia and dunamis. Now, dunamis is where we get dynamite. So there's this power. That's the, the miraculous type of power. So it's power to change things. It still belongs to Christ. All authority is his. But also exousia is what he uses in this passage. And he's just used this word in chapter 10, verse 23, when he says all things are lawful. It's the same word. Authority, lawful. So we get this sense of power, not so much this power to do miracles, but a power that liberates us in the way that he's talking about all things are lawful. So these women have this authority, perhaps this newfound authority in a culture that does not allow for women to speak, this newfound authority to prophesy and pray in the worship gathering, but keep your head covered. But also, the symbol of authority is a symbol of the power of Christ. I think ultimately, it's all about the power of Christ setting things right, giving us freedom to obey the gospel, giving us freedom to gather in the ways we do, giving us freedom. He's got all authority to free us from the things that would enslave us, to free us from the obligations to follow any law that the world would try and oppose on us, and the freedom to obey those laws, those laws for his glory. So he's saying, look, here's the social norm. You have freedom to disobey, but because of Christ, the symbol of authority on you, you also have the freedom to obey as he works to set things right. So as as the culture distorts authority and submission, Christ is setting things right. So obey, submit. We are representations of his power through our obedience. And we're free to do so. Sometimes I talk a lot and I'm like, does that make sense? Because there's a joy there for me. I, f- I feel the freedom as I talk about it. And I hope you do as well. There's more to weed through before we get to application. But I want to be sure that we are wrapping our minds around what the Bible says about authority. Because we have a very distorted view of it if we come at it from the world's perspective. Now, verse 11 offers us some balance. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as women, or as woman has made, was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So Paul does understand reproduction. As man, or as woman was from man, now man is from woman. All things are from God. Eve was from Adam, yes, but ever since that, every man has come from a woman. And the very nature of that shows us some some mutuality, shows us some interdependence on one another. While men may in many ways rule the world, for good or for worse, there's no doubt behind every man is a good woman, a common phrase. At the very least, even the motherless or the wifeless were brought into the world by a woman. At the very least. But I think also many men, most men, are nurtured by their mother and the women in their life who have a foundational work of seeing them become the men that they are when they're adults. And in many respects, a husband needs his wife. 
And it's a distorted view if you think men can be independent of woman in any way. With all of this in mind, submission is in no way an expression of inequality. It's simply a function of design. Submission authority dynamic does not, it should not lead us to inferiority and superiority. Should, should not go there. It's not biblical. We so naturally make it about those things, but male headship addresses leadership from the perspective of, of love and care and service. The man should be self-sacrificial. How is that superior? The man should lay down his life for his bride. How is that superior? It's submission by nature to be self-sacrificial. This is like the submission Christ has to the Father. Though they are essentially, in essence, God, both equally, fully God. Christ submits to the Father in every way. It's all throughout the New Testament. They are essentially, equally one, just like men and women are essentially and equally mutual, interdependent, two beings, but one creation. And this is where we turn to the creative order. So as Men and women come together in Christ as the church, including pastors who are men and men and women serving the church in, in every other way. They are one and shouldn't, the, the gender roles should not be blurred. So let's take for a moment to the role of Adam and Eve, not just in creation, but also in their rebellion. We're not going to have time this morning because we're already quite a bit into this. We're not going to have time this morning to read from these passages, but I encourage you in your time Studying this idea, go to first, or the first, second, and third chapters of the Bible. Look at the creative order. Look at the specific creation of Adam and Eve. And look at the fall of man. And as you do so, consider God's design. And consider the role of a man and the role of a woman. But to give you an overview so that we can tie this together. Adam was created from the earth. God breathed life into him. And charged him with dominion over all creation. And first chapter says that he created man in his image. And then immediately following, he said he created man and woman in his image. So there's this bit of a delay. He created man in his image and he created man and woman in his image. And then chapter two, we get some breakdown of that. So we see that Adam was created and then all of creation was, in all of creation, there was male and there was female, but none of the females in creation were a fit partner for Adam, but it was not good for man to be alone. So God put him to sleep, first surgery, removed a rib, closed up the wound. No doubt there was no scar at all, because God is that kind of doctor. It's pretty awesome. And we don't have scars. Belly button. I'm just kidding. All right. So God created Adam from, or from the dirt, but Eve from Adam. He took that rib and he made woman. He presented it to Adam and Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman. It's written as if he's singing a song of praise for God's beautiful creation that is woman. And we can feel that, surely. There's a sense of completion that once wasn't there. All of creation was good, but the one thing not good was that man was alone, and now he has woman, and it's very good. One in the same creation. All other male-female counterparts in creation were created as two separate beings, but not Eve. She was taken from Adam. Same creation, 
created in the image of God, two parts of a whole. And then in chapter 3, this, this beauty of, of them being alone together in the Garden of Eden, naked and unashamed in chapter 2. And why would they be ashamed? No one's there to look. I'm just kidding. There's no shame because sin doesn't exist. That immediately comes to an end in chapter 3. When Eve, independent of her husband, out from under his protective covering, is deceived by the enemy and eats the forbidden fruit. And then this fool, Adam, standing there, apathetic, lazy, or worshiping the happiness of his wife or or attention deficit disorder, whatever it is, Adam stands there like a fool while his bride, his love, his wife falls into rebellion and then he joins her. And, And from this picture, they run and they hide in shame and Adam gathers fig leaves to cover them, immediately turning to some superficial savior, trying to fix the rebellion, fix the problem that they feel, and unable to do so, we're presented with this particular sin of man. When God, when God declares a curse against man and a curse against woman, this particular sin of man that has been passed down generationally is this failure to lead and protect woman, this failure to lead and protect our wives, this this temptation to manufacture redemption with false saviors all over the place. We in ourselves try to be a savior. We cannot do it. We're insufficient in every way, but again and again, we'll try to be the savior that our wives need or the savior that the world needs. We'll build our own kingdoms. We'll make it all about us. Worship me. See my glory. It's all about me. All because of this sin of Adam, no doubt rooted in pride, And a a response of fear because we realize we're not good enough. So we're terrified and we try and hide or we build up these walls of insecurity as if it's not true that we're weak. It's foolishness. And because of this fall, hostility exists. This is chapter 3, verse 15. Hostility now exists between man and woman. And this particular sin of woman and the failure to trust and submit to the leadership of her husband has now developed this, this desire to manufacture self-confidence, this, this stubborn independence, this fight to be the same as men. Understand the sin is to be the same as men, not equal. We're not talking about equality, but to be the same as man and creating the susceptibility to false saviors that men then in turn try and provide and and take advantage and oppress women in in various ways. And pride also is at the root of this sinful behavior because both cases we've lost sight of God. We're not worshiping God. And I don't have to go into detail explaining to you how this works itself out in individual lives. Looking at men and looking at women, you can see it. I know that you can. Whatever philosophy you subscribe to, I know that you can see the behaviors of man and woman as it relates to the first man and woman. And Jesus steps in. And he comes to bring truth, to bring freedom, to to command attention because he has all authority and he can set things right. And then we turn back to verse 3 and see what Paul wants us to know in chapter 11 To understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Let's return to the creative order. 
Jesus has reestablished the relationship between man and woman. Because now the curse says there's hostility between us. And the curse to woman is not just pain and child labor, which we focus on because the Lord knows it's true. But also in verse 16 of chapter 3 in Genesis, we see that the curse to woman is a refusal to submit to her husband, but then to be controlled by him. But Jesus says, no, this is not how it functions. God created, I created, he says, an order to this. I created roles for this. There's no room for arrogance and oppression and insubordination in the design of God. There should be unity in this complementarian way, man and woman in their roles, complementing one another, understanding the creative order so that man is not self-sufficient and woman is not insignificant, though the culture would function often in those two terms. It's all about man, sufficient on his own, Who cares about women? They're insignificant. Those are generalizations, but our culture, I would even say the church culture, often functions in that way. Clearly, authority and submission is something that pervades all of the universe. It's not just between man and woman. It's between man and God. And it's even between God and God. That should tell us something about how authority and submission works in God's design. Let's finish. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Don't send that to your long-haired guy, friends. Hold on. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now this is another illustration, just as he used the, the creative order, this is another illustration for the underlying point. It refers to this cultural sign of, of boys becoming men. It's time to cut your hair, all right? It's time to fit the cultural understanding of what it looks like to be a man. So in this particular culture, if a man had long hair, it meant one of two things. He was, an, he was just an effeminate man, this crazy guy in the culture, or a homosexual. And he was welcoming the the pursuit of homosexual relationships. So, men, cut your hair. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? In our culture, long-haired men can have many things. I mean, they could be rockers or hipsters or, I don't know, Rastafarian. There's a lot of possibilities for long hair in our culture, so we don't immediately go to application there. In fact, even in that time, the Jewish culture didn't hold these same sort of standards. In fact, Jewish culture, many men had long hair. If every painting, though they're inaccurate, every painting you've seen of Jesus, white Jesus, black Jesus, Middle Eastern Jesus, they all have long hair, right? Who, who's to even decide what long hair is? Where does the cutoff point? Touching your shoulders, middle of your back, What's long? Who, who even knows, right? And specifically, there's a Nazarite vow that Samson and John the Baptist took where their hair was not only long, but for Samson, it held his strength. Like it was a symbol of honor. So how can Paul now say it's dishonorable? Certainly Paul knows Jewish tradition. So those are just a few examples of why we don't hold this as a dogmatic truth Though some denominations do enforce legalistic rule following for hair length, 
for both men and women. I see no reason here to prescribe that. I don't think Paul is writing with prescriptive intent at all. In fact, the word nature here doesn't just refer to what, what you just know by, by nature. It's not just, hey, look, by nature, women can grow their hair long and men have a harder time doing it. Male pattern baldness. So in our culture, bald men are super holy. Shout out. All right. I used to make fun of them, but I think I'm balding now, so I'm going to just embrace it. We're super holy. I'm getting there. But nature here refers more to an instinct. All right. So more to what we just understand is right. We just feel it. There's an intuition about it. So he says, judge for yourselves. And as we've discussed, they're not great judges when it comes to spiritual biblical insights. But specifically, when you're observing the culture, they can handle this. Judge for yourself. He's saying, look at your cultural context. He's saying, be about contextualization. As missionaries, we certainly should understand our context. What does the culture say? And how has it shaped our understanding and our, even our instincts as to what's natural about what a man looks like and what a woman looks like? And the, nat- and the nature of this, there is some prescription. And the nature, in general, men feel shame when we're emasculated or when we're considered effeminate. And in general, women feel shame when they're considered masculine. Whatever the culture, whatever the context, that principle remains true unless there's been some distortion of truth. Now, the cultural symbols for femininity and masculinity change given the context. So in America, Paul may have written, doesn't nature teach you that a man shouldn't wear a dress? Whereas in this culture in Corinth, everybody wore dresses. Pants weren't invented yet. But you guys know that if I were standing up here in a beautiful floral dress with a bonnet and some lace, it would be weird. And at least I would feel uncomfortable. I don't think I could do it. Not even as a joke. Because by nature, you know what's effeminate and you know what's masculine. Now, there's something beyond this this culturally influenced, environmentally shaped, unconscious bias that we try to dismiss everything. So those who want to blur the gender lines are saying, oh, it's just a social construct. It's it's implicit bias. That's why you think this is masculine. My, My son's going to wear pink dresses until he decides what he wants to be. And that is absurd. There's no way around it. It's absurd. It's against nature. Not because... American culture determines what's masculine and what's feminine, but because it's written into who we are that we just know by nature. There are some things that we should challenge because they're just a matter of personal preference and they're used to shame people. Like you have to have a beard or eat spicy food or smoke cigars or know about sports or drink whiskey and IPAs to be a real man. I am guilty of doing that because it's an easy joke. This guy... (laughs) doesn't even like IPAs, right? He's a wheat beer guy. Lame. We do that because it's easy joke. And we should rail against that. I don't know why I just entertained it. We should not do that, right? Because coincidentally, I I can't grow a full beard. Am I less of a man? Don't answer. (laughs) I I like spicy food, but I don't want it to be so hot I can't taste it. 
So how is it more manly to scorch your mouth beyond the ability to recognize flavors? It's ridiculous. Cigars are disgusting. I know enough about sports to entertain a conversation because I have to have small talk. It's a rule in our culture. But I don't want to devote myself to studying stacks or stats and remembering guys' names. I just can't remember names. I don't know who was traded to who. I don't know where they went to college. I'd rather play the sport than know all the facts about it. Am I less manly? I prefer the NFL over college. Whatever. I won't comment on drinking whiskey because you guys get it by now. Also, if you don't drink whiskey, you're not a man. I'm just kidding. Frankly, a lot of that is just insecurity. The people who would say those things are insecure about their masculinity. And they're trying to establish themselves as dominant. And that's sin. Kill it. That's why we have to rail against it. And also, on the flip side, there are some things in our culture that should be challenged as far as a a, a systemic misogyny that exists. There there is this, this... this air of patriotism uh, from as talking about being a man, so <laughs> not loyal to a country. There's this, this system of oppression that exists within a patriarchal system uh, of women and that's, I think is dangerous. And we need, to, we need to figure out how to fight it instead of just giving in and, and accepting the rules because it's easier. Uh, there, there's also a pendulum swing that is unnatural that so-called Christian feminists exist and saying that men and women are the same. Make no mistake, they may use the term equal, but what feminists are saying, their agenda is to say men and women are the same, and that's just not true. We're not the same. We're distinct. We're different. We feel it. We know it by nature, by God's design. We have unique roles, and in every way, we're equal because it's not about superiority, inferiority. The point here is the culture may change But the teaching of what is natural rooted in creation does not change, except for where there's a perversion of these things and a defense of that perversion in the case of transgenderism and homosexuality. We we must stand against those things. It's unnatural, but also it's dangerous. It's, It's absurd when we get to the root of it, as absurd as things like abortion, which we have no problem vocalizing. Abortion is murder. Let's just call it what it is. Transgenderism, homosexuality is unnatural. It's uncomfortable to talk about because so much shame is carried with it, but we can't make the mistake of of fearing being a bigot. Being a bigot is a sin. You should not shame people and you should not maintain the stature of superiority because that's not what we're talking about. Yet we rail against what's wrong because we have the authority of Christ to give us freedom to obey what's natural. And we live as missionaries in this particular context, requiring us to contextualize things and freeing us from any distraction or any possible way of of diverting the glory to ourselves, being united in every way with all the diversity that comes with it, uniquely equipped to serve as men and as women, and and all the work there is to be done there because the church fails in many respects. We got to keep going because we still have a verse left on here. So we can say definitively with Paul, the issue is not primarily head coverings. Rather, it is about the objective, transcultural, God-given distinctions between man and woman and the ways we should function in a worship gathering as a man and as a woman rooted in the creative order in such a way that even unbelievers can see that it's unnatural. You don't even have to have Christ to see in our culture what's feminine, what's masculine. 
And if there's any sense of contention, if there's anyone that wants to raise an argument about this, Paul says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do we, or nor do the churches of God. He's saying, if you want to raise an argument against this, there's nothing you can offer. There's no argument you could bring against us that anyone in the church of God would agree to. There's no such thing that exists beyond this because by God's design, it's written into who we are. God created men and women, distinct roles. We cannot eliminate those distinctions. All right, so some application here. As we gather as believers, the overall application, prepare yourself. It's not about you. All right, we can handle that one. It's not about you. It has nothing to do with you. It's all about the glory of Christ. Anything that would say it's about you does not belong. There's a lot to work through there because we function a lot on our preferences and what makes us comfortable. And so there's some things like we can have air conditioning, we can have chairs to sit in. That's all right, I think. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to fast sitting in a chair. That's on you. But when we gather to worship, our aim is to glorify God in every way possible because it's not about us. So anything that distracts from that does not belong. We set aside our preferences and our opinions in order to see God glorified. And as a personal application for you, and if you want to consider how you dress, because there are some social norms, like as a general rule, we don't, we don't preach with hats on or in shorts. I don't, there's no, nothing in Scripture that demands that. It's not legalistic, but it is a distraction, I think. I think there are some who would have a hard time listening to me or respecting me if I wore a hat. That's just the case. And I'm okay giving up my freedom to wear a hat up here in order to rightly make it all about Jesus. So there's that sort of nuance in our, our personal application. But as you, I don't think there's any, anything here to warrant us saying, women, you need to grow your hair out. Men, you need to keep it short. Please cover your hair if you're going to prophesy or pray. Men, do not cover your head if you're going to prophesy or pray. I don't think there's anything in here that could say it's going to apply directly in that way. But we can refer to these questions we asked last week. When we look in the mirror on Sunday morning, when we're getting dressed. And just ask, is, is God alone going to be worshipped? Are the people in my life going to be helped or hurt? Is God going to be glorified? Is this flowing from Christ in me or is it just me? Is the gospel going to be advanced or hindered? Like, make it all about Jesus in every way you can and how you dress. Not just here, but everywhere you go. Let's make it about Jesus. Can we do that? Find the freedom that you have in Christ and choose to give it up for the sake of Christ. And there are times where you can enjoy that freedom. It's probably not here. If you show up here in a two-piece swimsuit, I'm going to ask you to leave. I just think it would be a distraction. All right? And I don't think that you need to feel shamed about that. I, th- I just think we all just understand to at least some extent what's natural and what's unnatural. And we should seek to glorify God in every way we can. Now, corporately, men and women both have gifts given by God to give to the body of believers to the glory of God. And we minister with these gifts as individuals. We make up the, the membership. Clearly, though, Paul is making a point that women should employ an appropriate cultural means to demonstrate submission to their head, the man. And men should lead by serving and protecting with humble submission to Christ. 
the head of the church. Now, if this is difficult for you, if I say women submit to your husbands and that strikes you as difficult, I would suggest that perhaps you don't have a right understanding of authority and submission in the design of God. Due to the sin that's so pervasive in our culture and in our minds, we struggle to grasp authoritative positions because authority, submission, and scripture is not about authoritative oppression or obligatory obedience. And in order to help us see that, Paul writes it into verse 3. So it reads like this. He wants us to understand that the head of every man is Christ, to which we would say, amen, praise God, thank you, Jesus, that you are leading us in all of this. Then he says, the head of the wife is her husband, to which some may say, wait, what? I don't know how I feel about that. Ain't no man leading me. And there's resistance there, to which some Christian, quote, men would shame that woman for ever having a thought like that. And I want to free you from that shame and say to you, Paul has written in this next bit, for your sake, the head of Christ is God. This is not a linear order. It doesn't make sense to be written this way unless he's making a point. It should be that the head of Christ is God, the head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man. That should be how it's written if it's just linear, right? But instead he's saying the head of Christ is God to which he knows we would, or the head of man is Christ to which he knows we'd agree. The head of woman is man, to which he knows there may be some challenges, especially the spirit knows there may be some challenges in our cultural context. And so he offers us the head of Christ as God. And this helps us understand the dynamic because consider how God is the head of Christ. God proper, the father is the head of Christ. Just consider that for a minute. How can there be any authoritative oppression in that relationship? How can there be any obligatory obedience in that relationship? When in fact, it was Christ's joy to submit to the authority of his father, of our father. It is his joy. There's not a superiority, inferiority with Christ and God. There is a submission to the authority by God's design. Moreover, our relationship with Christ, man in general, in our submission to Christ, our head, Though he is certainly supreme, though he is certainly superior in an infinite way, we are finite. As it, as it goes that we consider authority and submission to Christ, it's not about superiority and inferiority. In fact, Scripture would tell us that we are co-heirs with Christ. Scripture would tell us that we are to be glorified with Christ. Christ is the new Adam. And currently, as we sit as believers, the Father looks to us and, get this, in every way we are equal in righteousness to Christ. Because we are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. And because of his authority, we are freed to submit. Because Christ is for our good. And in the same way, Christ submits to the Father. Because in his design, he brings about all of redemption. And in the same way, woman, man, had this authority, authority submission relationship. Wives, for your good. For your husband's honor, to the glory of God, in his design, women submit to the authority of the husband. And to be clear, there is nowhere in scripture where man is superior and woman is inferior. This is in no way written into the design of God. In fact, headship is about responsibility, not superiority. What we must maintain is there is equality, interdependence, mutuality, 
but a difference in roles by God's design. Each is man and woman equal in importance, essential for the design. Authority can't function without submission. Submission can't function without authority. And all of us are called to submit to the authority of Christ. Praise God for his design. And men, you should be spiritual leaders of your house, modeling submission as you submit to Christ, not as Adam abdicating that responsibility. And women, you should trust the loving leadership of your husband. It is difficult to lead. It is difficult to have authority. And an important caveat here in closing, I say that because I don't want you to get restless. In closing, it's coming to an end. Calm down. There's an important caveat as we consider complementarianism, which is opposed to egalitarianism, which says we're the same. An important caveat because there is this, this foolishness that, that honestly, it, it draws out this, this indignation in me, a righteous anger, because this foolishness exists in the complementarian camp that would allow for abuse of authority. And I want to be clear that the crossing church will have nothing to do with that. Our complementarian view will in no way oppress women if we have anything to say about it because the Bible in no way makes it about that. So husbands, if you believe, if you're under the impression that you have to lead your family with a sense of bravado that would intimidate your wives and your children into submission, you've missed it. And we will at every turn be on the side of the abused. Because we will always fight against oppression in every form that it comes. Because Christ fights against oppression. But let me also offer you grace, husbands. If that's you, even in the littlest bit, if you are, if you are drawn to rising up in anger and intimidating your wife so she can submit woman, I rebuke you and I call you to repentance. Because there are still open arms for you. Find help. Do not continue with this distorted view of authority. And wives, find the freedom. I hope that you have the freedom to go to your sisters in Christ and seek help if that's you, because you should not be led in that way. Make no mistake, it's nowhere in Scripture, and I hate that it exists in the church, but it certainly does. And many are abused because of this distortion going all the way back to the garden. And it's our missional hope that the world would see man and woman coexisting, interdependent of one another, mutually existing in their God-given design and their roles, loving one another, leading and submitting to one another and ultimately to Christ in such a way that the world would see how to submit to Christ. Because if Christ doesn't submit to the authority of the Father, then he doesn't come. Incarnation doesn't happen. Redemption doesn't happen. The cross doesn't happen. And there's no hope. Submission authority is written into the universe for a reason. So let's model that as we gather to the glory of our King. Let's pray. Whew, Father, thank you for your word. As crazy as it seems on the surface, I praise you for its depth, for its beauty, for the ways in, you, in which you can be worshipped as we consider how good you are, how faithful you are. Make it clear to us that you are working and moving in this gathering. And as we gather any place, be glorified. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Thank you for this opportunity to praise you with the freedom 
because of your authority. Help us, Lord. Amen.